This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. We have heard lots and lots and lots and lots of talk about tariffs, about trade wars, about Canada versus the U.S., not Canada and the U.S., Canada versus the U.S., We know that President Trump slapped some tariffs on some Canadian goods and Prime Minister Trudeau responded by slapping tariffs on some American goods. And then there's people off in the peanut gallery going, stick it to them. I mean, keep going. We got to show them we're not going to take it. Way to go, Prime Minister. Way to stick it to them. Well, the question becomes, is this really a good idea? Does Canada have any chance whatsoever if we were to get into a full-blown trade war with our partners to the south? Let me bring in a voice you know very well, who happened to be walking by, he was in the neighborhood, and so we said, come on into the warm studio and join us live today. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business, thanks for coming in. Glad to be here. Uh, It's so rare to have someone say, I want to come into the studio rather than do it by phone. We're thrilled to have you. We may not let you leave here tonight. We may take you hostage and just talk business for the next two hours. As long as you have a therapy dog, I'll be okay. We'll get to that later. Um, it is fun, of course, to think about sticking it to the big bad Americans sure. and the you know and being the little brother that will stand up to them. But is this a good idea in any way for us? Mm-hmm. So let me come at this in a couple of ways. Let's start with the person who Donald Trump truly is mad about, and that's China. So if we go back a few months ago, uh, Donald Trump put five billion dollars of, of tariffs or tariffs on five billion dollars worth of Chinese goods. The Chinese, without blinking, immediately copied that and put another five billion on. So about a week ago, a little over a week ago, Donald Trump announced fifty billion dollars. Uh, they responded again before the day was out with, "Well, we'll match you another fifty billion." So now he has said $200 billion, and China says, okay, if you want to keep playing this game, we'll up the ante. Now, why is China doing this? China feels that they cannot back down. In Donald Trump's world, if he challenges you and you acquiesce, you're a loser, he's the winner. That's his very simple world that he lives in. So now we take on Canada, and for whatever reason, this president uh, really should not be levying tariffs. It's not really part of the president's mandate. This is the mandate of the Senate and the House. There is one exception to this, and this is a law that was passed, I don't know, 60, 70 years ago, that gives the president the right to levy a tariff if it's a matter of national security. So he has argued that China's dominance in their economy is a national security issue. And and then he says that it's national security with Canada. Now, yes, it's true that we have a little trade surplus with the United States measured in single billions of dollars. With China, it's $100 billion. How are we in the same boat? But anyway... Regardless, he said he was going to put a tariff on our steel and aluminum. He delayed doing that. He gave us a couple of chances. And then because we didn't have NAFTA sorted out by June 1st, he said, all right, you're getting the same tariffs, you evil Canadians. We did everything we could to try to convince him and others of it. We're still doing that. Christy Freeland went to the Senate. They're having a hearing on these things. And he's saying he's overstepped his authority and they're wrong. But we can't just talk. We've got to act. And so uh, at the G7, after Donald said, well, maybe we could do some things on NAFTA, he assumed that would stop us from retaliating, and we are going to. So to your earlier part, we haven't actually put them on yet. It's going to go very appropriately on July 1st, Canada Day. We're going to match him. And now the question is, where does he want to go next? Will he stop? He has said that he might put 25% tariffs on auto. Now, I'm setting all this up because you can't just sit back and say, well, okay, that's all well and good. What is it going to mean for our economy? If this stops, if it stops, for instance, with aluminum and steel, there's a little impact, probably like a 0.1% change in the growth of our economy. We'd weather it okay. A little rough here in Hamilton because of the steel industry, but as Canada, we'd weather it okay. If it went a little bit further... Okay, maybe 0.3%. 
But the biggest thing, and this came from Scotiabank on the weekend, they modeled a scenario where not only do we not have NAFTA, but he puts a 20% tariff on all Canadian goods, including oil. At that point, the Canadian economy would fall back into a recession in 2020. And we, our economy would shrink by about 1.8%. But what's not being talked about is that their same model shows the American economy would fall into a recession in 2020. Not as deep, but it'd still be like 0.3% shrinkage. Why is he even doing this? So this is sort of a battle of attrition. One other quick note, if that did happen in 2020, oh my God, a recession, the Canadian dollar would lose ground. Now, I know if you're a snowbird, you don't want to hear that, but we'd probably fall below a 70 cent Canadian dollar. And guess what that would do? In 2021 and 2022, suddenly orders for our products would get up because like we're having a big sale on the market, our economy would actually grow 2% in 2021 and 3.2%. You haven't heard those kinds of numbers for a long time in 2022. We don't want that to happen happen. And the market, at least at this moment, thinks all of this is about a six to nine month affair and Trump will blink and this will all go away. But Trump is as unpredictable as the weather. But it, if Justin Trudeau, we've got 45 seconds here, if Justin Trudeau pushes this really hard, we are more at risk. Are we not? We are the smaller economy. We are the smaller economy. 10% the American economy, and we rely more. We're both on each other's number one trading partner, but we rely on them more than they rely on us. The risk to us is much higher of a full-on stare down. Absolutely. But I don't see any other choice. uh, In Trump's world, if you you blink, you lose. Yeah. and, And here's the thing. The National Bank of Canada put out a map this week, and it was a model of a map showing state by state, province by province, what percent of each's economy is reliant on cross-border stuff. Ontario, the, the i got to read this. The highest state was 14%. That was Vermont. The lowest province was 14%. Ontario is 49%. Mm-hmm. We are heavily reliant on making this happen. And that's the auto industry. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. In studio with Marvin Ryder from the Negroot School of Business. Uh, freshly back from Portugal laden with probably meat on a spear and, and nice port, red wine. And port wine. Lots yes, of port yes. wine. Yes, it must have been a good time. It was. I had not had port before, and I can just say to anyone who's listening, it's wonderful as an after-dinner drink. Don't try to drink port during the meal. It's too <laughs> too rich, too sweet. But afterwards, just to finish it off, lovely. Yeah, get the gout going with uh, with a whole lot of port during, <laughs> yeah. the, during the meal. Uh, we are chatting about trade wars because there's a lot of talk about whether Canada should be staring down the state, should be acquiescing, should be giving in, should be holding our ground. What should we be doing and what happens if we do whatever we do? And just before the break, we were chatting about the the reality that Canadian provinces are much more reliant than U.S. states are on the cross-border trade. And Marvin, I just, I, I wonder if that means that essentially we are sitting ducks, that we don't really have any leverage in this, that ultimately we are going to have to blink. Well, that's a very good question. Do we have to blink? So at least in this early round, I think Justin is absolutely justified to match. Don't go beyond. Don't don't insult the man. But if you put $5 billion on us, we'll put $5 billion on you. This next round, which is the car industry, is really going to be the kicker. For instance, is he going to apply the tariff to finish cars? And that's one thing. But the reason why Ontario's trade with the United States is 49% of the total is that when they make an automobile, parts travel back and forth. They get assembled into an engine. The engine is sent back, put into a car. Then something else is done. Some people have said and for some cars it's up to eight times it crosses hmm. the border. If you put a 25% tariff every time it crosses the border back and forth, my God, it's madness. And there's no one in the car industry who wants this either. So is it a hollow threat? 
And I think in this initial round, we're fine. Again, I don't want to underestimate the impact on, on Hamilton with steel and, and aluminum. But if that's where it stops, we'll get through this. And again, six months, nine months, everything will be fine. But if Trump decides to escalate it, what else do we have to do? So again, we're correct to fight this war on many fronts. One is to match them, but the other is to go down, make our case to the lawmakers. And I have been waiting at some point to see if the Senate and the House would step forward and say, Mr. Trump, there is no security threat with Canada. Canada is our friend. There is no argument here. You are overstepping your boundaries. But China can put the $200 billion and trade it off. We, we're not in the same position as China. No, and, and but also we're not the same threat as China. And so how did we get in that same boat? And by the way, it's not just us saying this. It's the European Union, France, Germany, England. Why are we in this boat? Japan, why are we in this boat? Why are your best friends and allies? And by the way, Donald Trump has to face everybody again here in just a couple of weeks. They're having a NATO meeting. He's going to show up again. And he really has this odd way of treating his friends. It does strike me, though, as very odd that back in 1985, 86, 87, when Brian Mulroney was trying to bring forward free trade, he was being shellacked for this. This was going to ruin our country. This was going to destroy the economy. And now 30 years later, we are fighting that we can't do without this free trade agreement that was so unpopular at the time this thing was brought in. Right. Well, why is Donald Trump doing what he's doing? And I'm sure there are listeners tonight who would echo that sentiment. So since we signed the free trade agreement 23 years ago, yes, we have lost some manufacturing jobs. There's no doubt about it. We've lost manufacturing jobs. And the common wisdom is, well, you know, Marvin, they went to Alabama or they went to Mexico. And I have bad news to share with people. That's not where they went at all. And so even with Donald Trump, when he says he's going to bring these jobs back, they all went to technology. Stelco, or let's take DeFasco as a better example. DeFasco makes as much steel as it has ever made with 20% the workforce. Well, wait a minute. How can they produce all this steel? They've introduced robots and automation and all these modern practices, and no one's about to give up on those things to suddenly bring back 10,000 workers. And, and so I know we want to blame somebody for this, but it's not, it's not the free trade agreement. And in fact, the free trade agreement, I'll give you another quick example, Mexico. Why are we still talking about Mexico? Population of Mexico is around 115, 120 million people. And the middle class of Mexico is bigger than the entire population of Canada. I, most people think there's a few rich people and dirt poor. That is just not the case. It's a very prosperous country, and we're in there. And in fact, that's why we want to do more of these things. The, the fact, though, that we're in this mushy middle right now of not really knowing what's going to happen with this, is that almost as damaging in, to, as far as luring investors, as far as having business invest mm -hmm. in Canada? If this persists, is the not knowing almost as difficult as knowing one mm. way or another? Well, this is why I think Donald Trump says America can win the trade war, because what he's actually trying to do is create volatility in the Canadian-Mexican economy. If I'm a car producer and I was thinking of expanding a plant in Mexico or in Canada, ooh, but he's going to put tariffs on, maybe, maybe I'll just wait six months, nine months. By the way, the same is true in the United States. So I'm U.S. Steel, the dreaded, hated U.S. Steel. But all of a sudden, oh, he's putting a tariff on Canadian Steel. I guess we should put a big plant expansion. But if he's just going to take the tariffs off in six months or nine months, it's not enough time for us to do anything. So he's actually putting a hold on his own economy as well as Canada's. This volatility doesn't help anybody. So what's the time frame for this? Do, I mean, does, is we, this something that we expect will go on for years or months? Honestly, I don't. I just don't think so. In fact, I think that for us is... Well, let, 
the next big thing would be the midterm elections in the in the fall. There's a pretty good chance the Democrats take over at least one of the two institutions, the House or the Senate. If they happen to get both, then this is a whole new game. And that's why I'm saying six to nine months. I'm not even sure Trump will keep this going. If, for instance, and, and again, Christia Freeland's been trying to do this, keep the NAFTA talks moving forward, that might be enough to get Donald Trump to change his mind. But he is so unpredictable, I, I can't tell you when he's going to blink either. As much as the unpredictability, we only got a couple seconds, is unpopular with us in business, is unpredictability always a bad thing? Yes. It is. Absolutely. Everyone hates volatility. So his friend, the stock market, he likes to point out, look how well the stock market is doing, has gone on a real freeze for the last few months because nobody knows. They like certainty. And this is why presidents normally watch what they say very, very carefully. They don't tweet from the bathroom at four in the morning. They carefully choose every word because they're all parsed carefully. And negativity, volatility is the enemy. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Always appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for doing this. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Let me ask you a question that you may have contemplated, whether seriously or just being sarcastic or just being frustrated or whatever else, but we have heard for a long time now that this current generation of young people are soft. They're snowflakes. You've heard that, right? Do you believe it? Do you believe that? See... I, I don't. I, gen, I generally don't. I generally give whatever we're going to call them these days, this generation that's coming up, Gen Z, Gen Millennials, whatever else. I generally give them more credit than some people do. And I think they are tougher than we give them credit for. I think they face a lot of challenges, all those kind of things. So I am not one of these people who, as a rule, dumps on Millennials. And part of the other reason is because, let's be honest, when my generation was coming up, the older people, the adults were going, oh, look at that idiot generation there, you know, those kids today. I mean, what adult has not at one time in their life or another said, oh, kids today, you got your socks, your black socks pulled up to your knee and your sandals on, oh, kids today, and you wave your fist. We've all heard it. We've all done it. So generally, I say... Yeah, I don't buy that. I don't buy the fact that today's kids, as a rule, are any worse, any softer, anything, anything else. And in fact, in fact, what areas they do things that you wonder about, I put the blame on us. Those of us who are the parents, if we are upset with the way that some of the kids are now, well, where did they learn this behavior? It's from us. We were the parents. We were the adults. We showed them this is the way to be. So if you've got problems, point it back at you. But anyway, I bring that all up because, and I want to hear from you on this one when you get a second, 905-645-3221 or star 9900. It has come to my attention this week, and it's not a new thing. It's been going on for a while at universities, but there are a number of high schools in this area that are bringing in or have in the last couple of years and this year uh, brought in therapy dogs for students to be able to deal with the stress of exams. Now, as much as I am not a downer on millennials and on the generation of kids that are coming up, I got to tell you, as much as I'm trying to be modern thinking, as much as I'm trying to be compassionate, as much as I'm trying to be understanding, I simply cannot wrap my head around the thought that a high school student writing exams needs a therapy dog to cuddle to deal with their stress. 
I'm trying. I have tried. I can't do it. I cannot bring myself to grasp the fact that you need to have a dog to pet, a dog to hug in order to deal with the stress of exams. And I'll tell you why. Because exams have been stressful for a hundred years. Exams have been stressful when my grandparents were writing them in a single room schoolhouse. I guess that'd be my great grandparents. When my grandparents were writing them, when my parents were writing them, when I was writing them, exams by design, by design are stressful. Part of writing an exam is stress. It is tense. It is putting you under the microscope to see how you can perform. That is part of what the exam process is. And so to suddenly say, well, you know, they're so stressed out, they need to cuddle a dog. Or I heard that last year, I was reading that last year there was a school in Hamilton that also offered coloring books, coloring rooms to go. And and I'm trying, I'm really trying, but what it sounds like rather than helping is we are infantilizing our students. We've moved them from youths, from babies to infants, to toddlers, to young people, to high school students, and now we've crested the hill and we're going to go right back down. We almost got to the top. It's like a Phil Mickelson putt from the weekend. It almost got to the top of the hill, and then it rolled all the way back down again. I'm sorry, I am trying, but this is ludicrous. And there will be those who will say, you're missing the point of therapy dogs. Well, first of all, to clarify the point of therapy dogs, I have a good, close, personal friend who has a son with autism. Not mild autism, a, a pretty severe case of autism. He has a therapy dog. It has done immense wonders for him. That is not what I'm talking about. That is not at all what I'm talking about. I am not talking about a person who has a significant special need that would require those kind of dogs, those kind of therapy tools. That is an entirely different story. And I support that 1000%. And those tools, a dog can do amazing things for people of various, as I say, different special needs. I am talking about high school students and let's be honest, Marvin Ryder was just in here. Therapy dogs are all over at universities too. All over the place. Universities are bringing in therapy dogs. They're bringing in flocks of therapy dogs. There are herds of therapy dogs at universities so people can deal with stress. Now, again, exams especially, which is when a lot of this is being brought in. Exams, to me, part of the point of an exam is to put you in a stressful situation. They want to test your knowledge, but they want to see that you can handle stress. That's part of preparing you to go out into the world, is it not? Is not the point of high school preparing you for the next step, preparing you for the stresses you're going to face when you get to university? And the university point is that it'll prepare you to learn your craft, learn your whatever, and go out into the stresses of the next biggest part of the world. How are we helping kids who are under stress, exam stress, 
by giving them a dog and saying, hey, we, you know, I know you're not really, you're under a lot of stress, so we're going to go back to your childhood. You can cuddle the dog and think about when you were in the womb or something. I'm not exactly sure. Anyway, Will wants to jump in. Go ahead. Well, if I could just play counterpoint for a second there, Scott. Uh, what about the situation we are preparing them? Like, I, I assume the dogs aren't there while you're writing the nope. exam, wagging the tail and blowing the papers. It's in between exams. Yes. It's just exam season. You have the option to go see a dog. Now, if you were an adult and you're out and maybe you've just worked a really stressful week, maybe your weekend plans, you might ha- put some time aside, right, to go do something that relaxes you, takes your mind off things for a second, keep you refreshed. Is that not possibly what we are doing with these dogs? It, your office. We, you know what? I'm going to pick that up. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Will said, but don't we as adults, after a hard day at work, go home and do something to relax? And I would say absolutely we do. But if you you could do that if you are a student as well. You can go home. They are bringing these in. We don't have at our work, at least most places, not since Mad Men anyway, we don't have the drink cart come around to have a shot of scotch in the middle of the day. Maybe some places still do that. We don't have most people in the middle of their day at work be able to go somewhere and get a massage or have a steam or what you might go for a cigarette break if you're a smoker. You might go for a walk. But it seems to me that th- there's two issues at play here. The first one is that if we are thinking that these therapy dogs are really, uh, let me back up. We either believe that these therapy dogs are needed for these kids, and this is a real big help, which to me would suggest, I think that we really are setting very low expectations for the students. We're saying to them, we don't think you're capable of handling this kind of stress. Again, it's adults bringing these in. I don't think it's the kids who are demanding the therapy dogs. We as adults are saying, you kids are so soft, so stressed out that we need to help you. Well, I think, again, I I don't believe that. But if it is, here's the other problem. If that's the case, if something from the time I was in school, from the time Willow was in school, if we have now done something that has changed the way kids are living, the way kids are being dealt with, if we now have a situation where kids are under so much stress that they cannot, cannot deal with the everyday ravages of life. If we have created a system in our society that would not make it possible for students on a daily basis to be able to get by, that things are so stressful. And I read somewhere that something like 40% of students feel like they are, and not just in Hamilton, across Canada, across the States, are feeling immense or intense stress. If we have done that, then we're missing the point by bringing in therapy dogs. We shouldn't, the dogs is just treating a small symptom. We should be going after the root cause. This to me is missing the point entirely. If we are creating such terrible stress for our students, and we may be, Don't bring in dogs and pretend this is going to be the answer. Fix the system that has created this much stress on our students, if that's what the the case really is. But if that's not the case, if exams are the same as exams always have been, which have always been stressful, I'm sorry, but your grandparents and your parents and everyone else has been able to get through the exams. It is stressful. That's part of the experience. I don't know that we need to have 
canines around for you to cuddle. But I go back to my point. If the argument is that now because of pressures of university, pressures of life, pressures of millennial life, pressures of not having jobs, pressures of housing, pressures of money, pressures of broken families, pressures of this, pressures, if all of that is mounting on the students, if all of that now is bearing down on 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, that they legitimately that they legitimately are looking at life and saying, you know what, this is just, this is too much. This is just too much. I can't deal with this. And if that is legitimately at a different level than everyone else has been for generations before them, you are simply obfuscating the problem and hiding the problem and putting a Band-Aid on a cancer by bringing in a therapy dog rather than saying, hold on, stop everything. If we've got this level of stress, a dog is not the answer. The answer is to solve and repair the situation that has led to this amount of stress. How do we fix it? I'm not entirely sure. Do we spread out the exams more? Do we have a few fewer teaching days so you have longer time between the exams so you can study? I would presume that those within the education system would know where the stresses are, would know what's causing the stresses, would be hearing from the students. I'm not being facetious. Would be hearing what is the trigger for those immense stresses and presumably the guidance counselors, the teachers who were writing those exams a generation or two ago would be able to look and make an actual distinction and make a determination if things are really different or if they are Simply the kids are having a harder time dealing with it. And if they are truly different, let's adjust, let's make changes to what the bigger issue is, not just do this and pretend that we're somehow solving something by allowing people after an exam to color in a quiet room with dim lights and soft music or hug a dog. Uh, I would say from uh, what I have seen from the uh, younger people I work with at one of my multiple millennial jobs, uh, that that does seem to be the situation. They do seem to be under even more pressure uh, than my uh, span of the generation, my corner of whatever this generation is. Okay, and if that's the case, and if I say that you're correct, and I will give you that, that maybe that is truly the case, is a dog the answer? Or is changing the way we do things then to reduce life's stress somehow the answer? I think it should be a two-pronged thing. I think you're right that there are people who would be using these dogs as a as a band-aid solution. I think there should be a lot of overhaul of a lot of things, but I do think there is some credence to the thought of let us show these students that they do need to let because a lot of the time you can you know the people who will just keep plugging away who will just keep working they need to be reminded that they need to take some time so i can see some credence in the thought of saying look here is a dog yes i know it is silly but maybe come check out this dog in between classes you might feel a little bit better or maybe find your own way of dealing with it between work however i will agree it is a very minor solution compared to other things that can be being done. We're not, we're not mocking mental health here. The no. question is, if there is this much stress that is leading to this much, this much mental health problem, mm-hmm. don't bring a dog in. Bring in someone who can solve the problem. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. On Father's Day, which was this past weekend, I was... I don't know if I was on Facebook or if I was on Twitter or I don't know. I was on social media somewhere and I saw a posting from 
an employee here at 900CHML, one whose voice you hear regularly if you listen to this station. Her name is Laura Hampshire. She is on from 3 until 6 on the newsreel. She is reading the news every single afternoon. Again, if you listen to CHML, you know her voice. She's been working here for three months, maybe four months. I'm not sure exactly how long, but she's reasonably new here. But you have caught her voice because she's excellent at what she does. Anyway, she posted something and she was wishing happy Father's Day to her dad, Keith. And I read it and then I went, wait a second, Keith. And I quickly sent her a note back on social media and I said, wait a second, your dad, Keith, isn't like Keith Hampshire, the singer, is he? And she was like, well, yeah, he is. And I said, your dad isn't Keith Hampshire as in the singer of the song that everybody sings along with during the seventh inning stretch at the Blue Jays games, is he? And she said, well, yes, he is. Well, funny thing, we had him on the show about a year and a half ago talking about that particular song. Now, I'm going to replay that. We don't usually go into the vaults, but I'm going to replay that interview today. And here's the thing to remember. This interview was done with him right in the middle or at some point in the tooth at the end of the 2016 playoffs when the Blue Jays were in the playoffs. So unlike now when the Blue Jays are sucking on the tailpipe, the Blue Jays were very much in the playoffs. They were very much in the mix to win the World Series. Everybody was into the Blue Jays. So if you hear a question and you say, Scott, you do know they are 15 games out of first place. Yes, I do know. This is a pre-recorded interview from a while ago, but I thought I would bring it back because it's a great story. And now that I know that there's a Hamilton slash CHML connection, I thought, let's tell the story again of the song, OK Blue Jays. Here is Keith Hampshire. If you've been listening to the radio for a number of years, you have probably heard this song once upon a time. You've heard this song, right? It's it's a pretty familiar song. If you listen to Canadian radio back in the 70s, you heard that song. Daytime, nighttime was a great song. Well, my next guest is not on the show because he sang that song, catchy though it may be. He is on the show because right now everybody, everybody is talking about the Toronto Blue Jays. And back in 1981, he sang this song. Got a diamond, you got nine men, you got a hat and a bat, and that's not all. You got the bleachers, got them from spring till fall. You got a dog and a drink and the umpire's call. What do you want? Let's play ball. Is that a fly ball? Or is it a seagull? Coming in from the lake. To catch the game, it's the last inning. Our guys are winning. Dave's put down a smoker, a strike, and you got no doubt. What do you want? Let's play ball. Okay, okay, Blue Jays. Blue Jays. 
That voice is my next guest, Keith Hampshire, who joins me now. Keith, thanks for doing this tonight. Well, you're very welcome. You are a man, clearly, of endless musical talents. <laughs> you think? And, and I understand you did a whole bunch of commercial jingles, too, and, and ads and things like that as well. Oh, yeah. That, that, uh, that sort of kept me alive after uh, my recording career ended. How did you... Now, again, most people, I'm guessing, didn't really know you for... Okay, Blue Jays. We'll get to that in a minute. But you didn't write this. How did you end up singing it? How did you end up stumbling into being the guy who is the voice of Okay, Blue Jays? Well, after my uh, recording career ended, I uh, decided to step away from the public uh, um, limelight or whatever you want to call it. And uh, I decided to um, live an idyllic life on a farm uh, north of Toronto and uh, raise my kids and um, have a few horses and uh, make a living doing radio and television commercials. And uh, so uh, I sang a bunch of jingles. I did a few voiceovers and um, did some theater and did some television. I did all sorts of things. But uh, um, one day my agent called me with an audition for uh, the Blue Jays song. And uh, they were, I guess an ad agency was putting together this song to go with a, a promotional video that they were going to pitch to different uh, areas to try and drum up interest in the ball team, I suppose. And uh, hmm. so, anyway, so it was um, not playing in an audition along with I don't know ten, twenty, thirty other guys, and uh, I was the one they chose. So it wasn't planned that this was going to be the song that would live forever. It was just going to be to try and move some product. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, now, I think they were just trying to drum up interest because uh, I guess back in the early '80s there wasn't wasn't a whole lot of interest. You, when I played the first song, Daytime, Nighttime, and then Blue Jay, OK Blue Jays, I got to tell you, you don't sound like the same guy. You obviously have an ability to find the voice, I guess is the best way to say it, for what song you're singing. How did you decide on what you were going to do for OK Blue Jays? Well, I don't know. I um, I guess I'm kind of a chameleon. I sort of listened to the backing track, and uh, it sort of sounded like a Randy Newman kind of song, so... I thought I'd um, emulate his uh, mindset, if you will, and uh, um, instead of doing a you know a power power ballad sort of thing, just um, give it make it kind of quirky. It, you know what? I don't know if it would have sounded like that beforehand, but it sure does. When you talk about Randy Newman, it sure does have that kind of sound after you did it. Now, when you go in for the audition. Do you go in, you've obviously heard the song, you've practiced it, you've walked in with your own interpretation of it, but is it just stand there and do the whole thing and then they said you're hired or did you have to come back weeks and weeks later when they chose you? Um, <laughs> it was a long time ago, you know. <laughs> um, I, 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 um, I, think, I, I think I went in and auditioned and then, uh, um, you know, uh, a few days later I was called back to uh, do the final gig. Were you a Blue Jay fan? Were you a baseball fan? Always, always, always. Baseball is my love, my my one true love. I um, uh, it's it's my favorite sport. Let's put it that way. So when you went to this, uh, I mean, we hear stories all the time of people who get connected to something that's completely not really a fit. You were a baseball guy then. You walked into this knowing what this was for. That this could be a, a match with you. Uh, yes, I suppose so. I mean, I uh, I still um, uh, go to Dunedin every every winter. Really? And go to spring training. As a matter of fact, they've had me uh, sing the uh, national anthem for a, a number of years. 
uh, not every game, but uh, sort of once a year, up until a couple of years ago when they had a, a disaster happen. But they, um, uh, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really involved in, in, as a matter of fact, they had me, uh, they had me sing the Blue Jays song once for the seventh inning stretch at a, at a, a spring training game. And, uh, they forgot that the song was two and a half minutes long and they were sort of <laughs> tapping their toes and looking at their watches while I was in the middle of this. They wanted to get back to the game, to tell you the truth. Well, have you ever, have you ever done it at the big game? Have you ever done it at Rogers Center? Would you? Well, sure I would, but I've never been asked. I wonder why that is. I, I mean, why know. why would they not? I don't know. Maybe they don't. Don't I don't know. You can't be that hard to find. I found you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm easy to find. It's um, in the phone book. You, you, so when you do this, and again, I know that this was not intended to be, I don't think at that time, something people would sing in the seventh inning stretch, but you... What, did you figure you would just do this and it would vanish in a couple of years and on with the next thing? It was just a job? That's right, yeah. You don't expect it to uh, to stick around by any means. And, I mean, the song is dated. There's a couple of references in it. To uh, One is to Dave Steeb, and the other reference is to Billy Martin, the uh, uh, deceased manager of the uh, Oakland Athletics. So, uh, you know, the song is definitely dated. Well, but you know what? I, I caught the the reference to uh, to Dave. He still I can't remember what the word was now in the second verse that he uh, was about. The, you know, he still had a heater going. He still had the he still had it in his arm. But I didn't even catch the Billy Martin part. Um, but this song, so you're, you you do this, and then all of a sudden they start playing it at the Blue Jays. Uh, eventually, they start playing at the game, and I understand this suddenly now starts getting on the chart. People started buying this this single. Yeah, what happened was the fellows who um, wrote the song, Tony Kozenek and Jack Lenz, they um, went to the Blue Jays' uh, head office or whatever and said, uh, would you be adverse to us um, uh, pressing a few copies of this uh, record and selling it at the games? And they thought, the Blue Jays people thought, oh, that's a that's a gimmick. That's sure, why not? So um, that's how it uh, sort of became a record and started getting sold at the games. And when actually became a gold record, actually became a gold record. That's amazing. You're telling me. <laughs> Did you ever get a copy of a gold record? Well, yeah, that's a funny story too. Because what happened was, I was uh, reading the paper one day, and there was a small little um, notation in the corner of the entertainment section. It said, "The uh, um, OK Blue Jays, the Toronto Blue Jays theme song, has been." Uh, Certified gold by Canadian Record <laughs> Industry Association or whatever. And uh, so I thought, oh, wow, I've never had a gold record before. I supposedly sold three quarters of a million records worldwide, but uh, uh, never got a gold. So I phoned up the record company, which happened to be my old record company, and I tried to talk them into uh, sending me a gold record. And finally, I got a hold of somebody who who was in a power of... Uh, of actually getting something done, and uh, they said, "Yeah, sure, no problem." So anyway, uh, a couple of weeks later, I get a uh, doorbell rings, and uh, there's a, uh, a delivery man there, and he says, "Are you Keith Hampshire?" And I said, "Yeah, I am." And he says, "Special delivery," and I said, "Oh, fabulous! Could be my gold record." He said, "Could be." He says, "That'll be eighty-one dollars, please." <laughs> nice of the record company. Let's make you pay for. It. Do you still have it? Oh, by all means, yeah, it's hanging behind my toilet. <laughs> why, why, pray tell, is it behind your toilet? 
Well, we don't want to. We don't want to rub people's noses in when they come in the house. They just, uh, you know, if they have to go to the bathroom, uh, then oh, oh, you know. Okay, so people come out of the jaw and they've just relieved themselves and they've suddenly discovered that the person they're having dinner with is the guy who's saying, okay, Blue Jays. That's, that's got to be something you'd want to start the conversation with, not when they come out now they want to shake your hand out no, of the bathroom. No, we're, we're, uh, <laughs> we're, uh, we're famous in Canada and anybody who's famous in Canada knows that uh, you can walk down any street in any town and nobody's going to recognize you. So uh, why would you rub their noses in it? Still though, you know, the, the fact that we are now, it was 1981, so I mean, you're 35 years later, and that people still know this song and probably know it better than ever, and you're talking generations now, Keith, of people who know, maybe not the entire thing, but, you know, the first verse and the, cor- and the chorus, that's got to be pretty cool that people can, that every time you watch a game, people are singing your song. Well, that, you're tr- that's true. It is, uh, it's a great feeling, and uh, I love going down to the Rogers Center. Yeah, it's called the Rogers Center now. Yeah. <laughs> my grandkids and they sort of look at me at the seventh inning stretch and go, hey, that's you, Papa. And I said, yeah, that's me. Do you sing along with that's it when it comes on? Yep. And is anyone loud enough for anyone around you to hear? Um, sometimes, yeah. Has anyone ever caught on when you're at the stadium that that's you? No. Have you ever told anyone? Um, uh, yeah, a couple of people who may have uh, overheard my grandkids, but... Uh, and what and what's the response when on those few times that you've that someone has found out? What do they say? No, it's not you. <laughs> so how do you do you prove it or you say, All right, well whatever, if you don't want to believe me, that's fine. Exactly. Exactly. You, have you ever signed an autograph for it? No. Like really? I say, it's very easy to be famous in Canada. Yeah, you know what though? I I, I mean I look I put this kind of in the category in a lot of ways, Keith, with um with the Hockey Night in Canada song, with Dolores Clayman, or with, uh, you know, some other people who have written these songs, and they've just become part of the musical vernacular, part of the culture of our country, and we don't necessarily know the name of the person, but we sure know the music. Yes. It, it's amazing. It, do you, this is an odd question, I suppose, because it has, been, it has been 35 years, and when you hear, do you like the song? I love the song. I think it's a fabulous song. Very clever. And I don't mean, I, I didn't mean it like that. My, my, my question is, almost everybody who is in some sort of performing career looks back at what they did and they find something that they wish they had done a little different or a little better when they were recording or performing or whatever else. Do you hear anything and you go, oh, I wish that I had done this or that? Or do you hear it and you go, you know what? No, I nailed it that day. No, I nailed it that day. No, that's good. <laughs> no, that's great. That's I mean, that's fantastic that you that, that you can do that because if you didn't, that would drive you nuts for thirty five years to hear what's driving you nuts. Well, yeah, but can you imagine some some poor schmo who uh, records a song and sure the song's a hit, and that's the only hit he's got, and then for the rest of his life. He has to sing that freaking song every <laughs> exactly. night. Exactly. No, exactly. I. It, it's a, I'm gonna sing that song again, and I've got to make it sound fresh and new, and yet make it sound like the original. Yeah, I can't imagine. When was honestly? When was the last time you sang the song? In I mean, completely. Has it been in? Has it been years? Or every once in a while, do you actually go into a quiet room and let her rip? You mean Blue Jays? Yeah. Uh, uh, probably the last time I sang it in completion was at spring training in Dunedin those many years ago. 
It is uh, honestly, it's a, it's a fantastic story. It's a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful piece of Canadiana because, again, especially now, Keith, that the Blue Jays have become Canada's team, and you see the numbers. I was talking before we came on about the TV ratings: ten million unique Canadians, individual Canadians, are watching part of that last game on Sunday night, and everybody who was watching, I guarantee, knows at least part of that song. That, that, again, that has to be a, an amazing thing to know, that something you were involved with has become just so much immersed in the culture, so much part of the sports story of this country. I suppose so. It's um, uh, <laughs> it's just something that happened, and uh, I'm very proud of it. There you go. Keith Hampshire whose daughter, when you're listening to the news tomorrow, when you tune in tomorrow between 3 and 6 and you hear Laura Hampshire doing the news on the news with here on 900CHML, that's her dad. So when you call in to ask for Laura, start by singing OK Blue Jays every single time. She'll love that. Actually, I asked her about it the other day and she said, you know what? For a few years, I was so sick of that song. <laughs> she's, she's okay with it now. She's, you know... I guess enough time you, you start to, you're very, she's very proud of her dad. She said that very clearly, but still I'm thinking for a certain time there, you heard that song. She heard that song a lot and it's kind of a gimmicky song. It's supposed to be a gimmicky song. I could see how you'd be tired of it, but now she's, she loves it. And there you go. So there's your, there's your connection. Next time you hear her, listen to the news. She's telling you the news, but know who she is. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML. There was a, uh, this online site has collected a list. Now, you can take issue with it. They're not in any particular order, although I'm saving my personal favorite for last. But it is a list of the worst food ideas ever conceived. Now, keep in mind, this is not Aunt Marge sitting at home trying to mix grapefruit and milk into some sort of recipe. All right, that would be a bad food idea. If you've ever consumed grapefruit juice and milk simultaneously, you realize that may be among the worst ideas you can do. I don't know what the scientific thing that happens with your saliva. Have you ever done that, Will? Have you ever had grapefruit juice and milk simultaneously? No, I have not. There is a scientific chemical reaction that occurs that turns your saliva into one long unbreakable strand so if you spit it'll just you can't break it off it's just gross it's anyway don't have grapefruit juice and milk together it's never a good combo i would agree i would think probably the same would go for orange juice but grapefruit in particular anyway this is not that this is mass market big company manufactured store available products that people decided would be good ideas for food. These are the worst among them. We'll start with, and I had this once and it seemed like this would be really cool and it didn't taste bad. It just was so off-putting with its colors. The Heinz Easy Squirt Colored Ketchup. Did you ever see that? Yes. I wondered if it would be on the list. They were, they had purple ketchup and green, the green ketchup especially was just wrong because you ate it thinking the whole time this has gone rancid. It's green <laughs> ketchup. Something has gone horribly wrong with my ketchup. It must be really, really old. Uh, it was awesome orange. Total. I can't read the colors here, but it was green, orange, and purple were the. See, I would be more off. Uh, be more put off by the purple. At least relish is green. There but is supposed to be green on your hot dog yeah, and burger but sometimes. Purple is never a bad taste. 
Tell me one thing that's purple that doesn't taste good. No, you know what? You're right. You have me there. And the best popsicle is always the purple popsicle. Yes, yes. The best part or the worst part of the easy squirt Heinz thing was that it didn't tell you what color you got. You bought the thing and it was either <laughs> orange or green or purple. You never found out till you got home. Uh, okay, this one was from a company called Trekking Matzletain. I think it's German. I'm not really sure. But this was a canned cheeseburger. Yes! You <laughs> open the can and the entire cheeseburger, bun, burger, cheese, everything is all inside the can. All you had to do was throw the can into hot water to boil it. Ooh. And that heated up the contents inside and I guess expanded the burger a bit and then <laughs> open it up. And, you know, again, if you've ever played tennis, you ever play, did you ever play yeah. tennis and you open up the... The ball, the ball can too. and the air. Kind of, like Pringles yeah, and it, whatever. But it makes a little sound. There's a pop of air. That's kind of what I imagine, except it would smell like old hamburger. Yeah. <laughs> which would basically mean you're opening a can of smelly sweat socks that you're then going to eat. Mm. Uh, pancake and sausage on a stick. True thing. Pancake and sausage on a stick. It kind of, I guess, looked a little bit like a pogo. Mm-hmm. When pogos are great, the difference is pogos you slather in mustard and they taste really, really good. And the mustard holds its place on the stick. This would just be syrup dripping everywhere. All over your hands and everything. Yes, it would just be syrup everywhere. What if they injected syrup inside of the pancake and sausage on a stick? That so would be better. kind of then like a McGriddle. Yeah. So it's got the syrup that's in the bun. Yeah, because I think otherwise I'm up for eating pancakes and sausages on the go. Uh, it, it, maybe, maybe. It probably would not be the highest quality taste. Uh, no, and this one, the next one, I am assuring you that you are going to be thrown off. I, I, at least, I, maybe not. Maybe you're really into odd foods. Let's find out. <laughs> this one was by Physics, F-I-Z-Z-I-X, not P-H-Y-S-I-C-K-S-I-C-S, sorry. <laughs> I spell really good when I'm writing. I, I'm a real good speller when I'm writing, not so much what I'm saying. Carbonated yogurt. Oh. Uh-huh. I want to try some. I have to admit, I want to try some, but that sounds bad. Carbonated yogurt. Now, it, I don't think it probably would have affected the taste. No, it's the, the bubbly. The bubbly yogurt. And imagine now you're walking or running with your yogurt. You take it to school and it gets shaken up and now you open it up and you and now you've got like a pop, like a Coke that explodes. Now you've got yogurt everywhere. I had a uh, bottle of Yop heat up once in the sun and then do just that. That's not a good thing. No. I don't think that would ever be a good thing. There was a company called Sweet Sue. Lovely name. You may know someone who was Sue and who was sweet. I mean, it, it could sound really good. However, they came up with Something really disgusting, the canned whole chicken. Now, it wasn't so much, if you look at the picture here, it's not so much that the chicken was in a can. You just need a big enough can. You could put it in there. But it's keeping the chicken in some sort of state of non-rotting in the can that would be the trick. So what did they do? It's unclear what exactly was the sauce, which actually looked more like a mucusy goo 
that actually further looks like someone, if you pull this chicken out of the can, it looked like someone had just been thawed from a cryogenic freezing and, or in Alien. Remember in yeah. Alien with Sigourney yeah. Weaver when it opened its mouth and all that dr- mucusy drool like it had came been, out? Uh, drinking uh, milk and pomegranate juice. Or grapefruit juice, yes. That's a, yeah, that's a- the goo that comes out. You basically had to rinse off your chicken because it was slathered in a mucusy slime. Oh my gosh. That to me is not a good chicken. If your chicken is covered in slime, it's time to get rid of your chicken, <laughs> not to begin the process of eating your chicken. <laughs> But Sweet Sue decided that people wanted a slimy, mucusy chicken in a can that they could take to work, I guess, and just crack it open and have it for lunch. The whole thing. Imagine if you decided, we're not having turkey for Thanksgiving this year. We're going to crack open the full chicken in a can, have one for everybody, or one for two or three, and just the goo will be our dressing. It'll be our our gravy. Ugh. Uh, Pepsi AM. Now, Pepsi AM is probably the least offensive of the things that's on this list. It was basically just a Pepsi product that had 28% more caffeine than a typical Pepsi. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it, they thought they were going to make this and it would become your morning beverage instead of coffee. Now, unfortunately, it was 77% less caffeine than in a cup of coffee. Oh. So you weren't really solving the problem. It was Pepsi with a little bit more of a boost. But, you know. It was it was just a fizzy cold drink. Okay. Gerber Singles. So Gerber is known, of course, for being a baby food company. Yeah. Uh, Gerber in 1974 decided to venture into the adult food industry. And so it created Gerber Singles. They were packaged meals that you could just unwrap and place on your plate. They were Gerber Singles. Uh they were marketed to college students and adults on the go. But I'm thinking that if you've got a company that is so specifically identifiable with babies, I, if I'm a college student, I don't want to be eating pablum at university or at least having people think I'm eating pablum. I got to think that's going to be a tough one to overcome for people. Even if it's, you know, Gerber whiskey, which would probably be a real difficult one to market since someone's going to confuse that and give it to the kid. Um, here's one that's, that's not been all that long since it was away. It's a bad idea to begin with. It's been a bad idea every time it's come back. The McLobster. You ever had a McLobster? No, no, I have not had a McLobster. I thought that was a joke. No, no, no. For the low price of $6.77, you can get a lobster sandwich. Now, when you think that a lobster, what a lobster costs to go buy, think of what quality this lobster must be and what parts of the lobster you must be getting. Like you are eating, I don't know, what part of the lobster would be left over? The little spindly legs? Uh, Something like that. They've all mashed together. They've had someone in the warehouse sucking the the meat out of the leg like you have to do with the little ones because you can't really stick anything... You have a professional leg sucker who then spits it into a bowl and they mash it together and you get a McDonald's McLobster sandwich. I don't know. Uh, Coors Rocky Mountain Spring Water. Coors decided that they were going to go out of the beer industry and go into water. However, however, they kept the Coors logo on the cans and on the bottles, which of course confused the heck out of people. So they would buy it and think they were buying beer and suddenly have 
lemon lime flavored water instead and not anyway it didn't last uh here's a gross one cheetos lip balm lip balm that was the flavor of cheetos no cheetos lip balm sylvester stallone pudding (laughs) it's true story it was a high protein low carb snack popular among bodybuilders um it was eventually discontinued because he was sued for allegedly stealing someone else's recipe. I don't know if he won or lost that lawsuit, but yeah. Lifesavers soda. So it's pop that tasted like Lifesavers. That can't be. How bad could that possibly be? It couldn't have been that bad. No, that does not shock me. Colgate kitchen entrees. So Colgate, known for its toothpaste, decides to get into the food industry in 1982 and basically had frozen dinner, like, you know, frozen dinners. So you could mix that with your, with your Gerber singles? And I have guess, and have your toothpaste mixed in. I, probably the dessert was flavored like toothpaste. I'm not really sure what it was. Um, where are we here? I can't skip over the, where is the really good one here? Uh, oh yes, I have to save that one. Um, Okay, New Coke. We know all about New Coke. That was a disaster. Uh, Celery Jello. Once upon a time, they actually had a celery flavor of Jello. Not so good an idea. Hula Burger by McDonald's. That was uh, for people who wouldn't eat meat on Friday. It was grilled pineapple topped with cheese between two buns. Didn't really catch on. And my personal favorite, because this is truly... The worst thing possible, the worst thing possible was Lay's Wow Potato Chips. So they decided, Lay's decided in an effort to cut back on fat and calories, they would fry these particular potato chips in Olestra, which was a fat substitute. But Olestra came with a slight problematic side effect. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, these chips were quickly discovered to lead to (laughs) anal leakage. (laughs) They, the FDA mandated that the packaging include a label to alert consumers they could experience abdominal cramping and loose stools. (laughs) So now you're going, you're going to the store to buy potato chips thinking, ah, these look great. I'm going to save weight. I'm not going to put on weight. But, oh, wait, what's that warning on the side? You may have anal leakage while eating these chips. <laughs> Don't venture far from the bathroom while eating these chips. Uh, they didn't They didn't, <laughs> didn't last very long. doesn't say whether they had any accompanying dip also with Alestra. Oh. Which, uh, yeah, what a, what a horrible product that would be. If they have to put a warning on there that things are going to be oozing out of you in the bottom regions, that is not a food that is probably going to sell a whole lot. Anyway, oh, sorry, that just that cracks me up every single time. That is number one, yeah. Yes, the, uh, the anal leakage chips, probably a very bad, bad, bad idea. Anyway, that's enough of that. Hope nobody was eating dinner. <laughs> The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.